All right, turn with me over to Exodus. We're making our way through the book of Exodus. We've come to chapters 11 and 12. And um, chapter 11 is real short. Chapter 12 is real long. Um, So I'm not going to be able to read every single word of it, but I am going to commend you to, if you haven't read it already, to spend some time before the day is over reading the entire section. Um, We'll get through all of 11, no problem. Uh, But 12, I'm going to begin to summarize some areas and pick out a few key verses in each one that will help us to see. So the title is Death Passes Over Israel. The Lord is liberating his people. He's going to lead them out of Egypt. They've been under the bondage of the Egyptians for um, hundreds of years. They're in the land for 430, we're going to read. But they've been under bondage for, for quite some time. They have endured all kinds of difficulties Uh, And God has sought to persuade Pharaoh to let his people go and to go worship him. But he's been unwilling to do that through nine different plagues. And, of course, the whole uh, courtroom uh, display of of the the staff turning into a serpent and swallowing up the other serpents that were in the courtroom. All of these, those nine plagues in that event, have moved Pharaoh nada. He does not care. His heart is hard, as the Lord said it would be. But in this next plague, the tenth plague, it's going to change everything. In our study so far, not only have we covered nine different plagues, we've also covered the four different compromises that Pharaoh offered. It was, hey, you can worship right here in Egypt. Or you can go, but don't go very far. Or you can go, but leave your kids. Or you can go... But leave your animals and don't make a sacrifice. And each time Moses says, no, that's not going to happen. We're going, all of us, with all of our livestock, and we're going out three days' journey. So um, this is now brings us to the moment where God is going to persuade Pharaoh once and for all. So we pick up at verse 1, and we read, And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. So here we see the timing of the Lord. I think it was our last study. The Lord said, listen, if I wanted to, I could have in one moment, one pestilence, I could have wiped all of you out and Israel could have been set free. But I've allowed your heart to be hardened towards me. I'm even hardening your heart so that when I am delivered, when I deliver my people, everybody will know that I am God. So now we've come to that moment where it's going to happen. And it's the timing of the Lord. It's the sovereignty of God. It's the plan of God. And nobody's going to stand in the way of it. Not even the hard-hearted Pharaoh. He's going to bring him down to the place where he is broken and he repents. Or relents would probably be a better word to use than repent. He's going to relent of that stubbornness at least for a little while until he has the Red Sea episode, which we'll get to in time. And he's going to say, fine, get out of here. You know, when God says no more, no more happens. When God says it's time to judge, then it's time to judge. When the Lord calls us home to be with him, it'll be time to go and be home with the Lord. There's no resisting him. There's no resisting God. Now, God, here's the interesting thing. God is sovereign and he does whatever he pleases. And I guess in the pleasure of God, under this great umbrella of his sovereignty, he allows man to have a free will. And his sovereign 
he gives us the opportunity. Now, sometimes God will interact with humanity and he'll say, this is what's going to happen and no individual is going to get in the way and that is exactly what's going to happen. And there's other times when God in his sovereignty says, this is what I want to do and he calls humanity to come alongside. And some will, relent, will, will yield to the Lord and they will follow him. Others will reject him. And so this, there's this tension that exists between the sovereignty and the, the, the free will of man. And we've seen this in many different ways as we've gone through this. But, but now the Lord's like, now this is it. This is the 10th plague. And he is going to let you go. It reminds me of how Jesus came in the fullness of time. All kinds of prophecies, right? All kinds of prophecies of the Lord saying, I'm going to come. I'm going to send my son. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. But there came a perfect time in which the Lord would come. And so we read in the Gospels that in the fullness of time, in God's perfect timing, he allowed his son to come to be born of a virgin and to walk this planet for 33 years. And he went to the cross, died, and rose from the dead three days earlier. But even in Jesus' life, after the fullness of time came, where he came to this earth, it was now got narrowed down to the hour, right? His hour of glorification. And you read through the Gospel of John, and over and over again, you'll find this phrase, it was not his hour, but it was not his hour. But then finally, it comes his hour in John chapter 12. And the moment comes where he is going to go to the cross, and he is going to be glorified. He's going to make that sacrifice. And nothing was going to stop them. Now, previously, they tried to arrest him. Herod tried to kill him. But none of that was going to work because that's not what God's will and God's timing was. And I think, likewise, we can draw back and we can look at these events and the working and the moving of God, and we can just say, he's in control and he's sovereign and I will trust him. And, of course, when you know him as your Lord and Savior and you understand that he's a loving, kind, generous benevolent, sovereign, it is really easy to do that. Or at least it's much easier to do that. Because you're like, all right, Lord, you know. I, I, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to obey you. So the timing of the Lord has come for Israel to be released after 430 years. Moving on, verses 2 and 3. It says, speak now in the hearing of the people. Let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. <clears throat> And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man, Moses, was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Well, Pharaoh hates him, but everybody else is like, this guy's pretty impressive. Like, he's got a pretty gnarly staff. I mean, he does all kinds of things with that staff. And he says something's going to happen, and it happens. He says something's going to stop, and it stops. And they, they, they saw Moses. Now, Pharaoh didn't, though. I mean, his heart was hard. Um, but this is what's going on. The Lord says, I'm going to, not only am I going to deliver you, but I'm going to deliver you with a plunder. And this is a big, this is a big point in the Old Testament. There's many places we'll read. I think we may read it two more times in this chapter, at least one more time in this chapter, of how the children of Israel plunder the Egyptians when they go. Uh, Genesis 15, verses 13 through 14 um, some 400 years earlier is prophesied that this would happen. This isn't some kind of like, you know, uh, uh, vague statement. It's a very specific statement. Abraham is told, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. 
And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So they're going to leave. And we'll, we'll come back and we'll see it again. There are going to be articles of silver, gold, and clothing. And the Egyptians are going to be throwing it on them and saying, just get out of town. And so the Lord is going to plunder them. You know, I, 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 we could talk a long time about this, but I'm just going to give you a, a, a thought for consideration here. Um, the Lord is, is a just God. And he has seen the injustice that these people have gone through for four, well, it isn't entirely 400 years of injustice because there's time of Pharaoh and that. But for at least, you know, uh, in the book of Exodus, we read of the oppression and, and the, you know, the way in which these people were used and enslaved. And God says, no, you're, you know, you're not going to do that. You're, you're going to let my people go and you're going to pay them. You're going to pay them back, actually. When they go, you're going to hand them money and they will um, receive the payment for their labors. Now, the Lord is going to use the spoils to actually build the tabernacle of meeting. So everything they're going to take, the, there's going to come an opportunity when Moses calls and says, hey, bring a free will offering to the Israelites, and we're going to use this to build the tabernacle. And they're going to come, and they're going to hand all this stuff over, so much so that they're going to have to tell them to stop giving because they're, they're, it's just that generous, and uh, they have more than they need. And so um, he is, though here, showing that he is a God of justice. You know, if you go through Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the prophets, the minor prophets, Amos, all of them, you know what you're going to find? I would say, I'm thinking of jo whether or not Jonah has or not, but I mean, almost all of the, the, the prophets speak about two things. Israel, you're following other idols. You've broken the covenant with me. And you mistreat the poor of the land, the needy of the land. And this has got to stop. And you're going to be judged for it. God is a God of justice. And so we need to learn to trust the Lord. The Lord says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Now, you may not see repayment in this lifetime. That's, that's the reality. Because, you know, you, if we even take the example in front of us, one generation of oppressed Israel got to see justice served. But there's a lot of other generations that died that never got to see this moment, did they? So they had to trust the Lord that as they were crying out to him, that in the perfect time he would come and he would deal with this. But in the courtroom of heaven, in the economy of God, at the end of the age, everybody will give an account for how they have conducted themselves. And so, you know, there may be some that feel like they, get, they were getting away with it in previous uh, generations of the Egyptians. Hey, this is what we do. We get away with it. We get away with it. But no, they stood before the Lord and they give an account for that. Because the Lord is very tuned in to how uh, people are treated. I'll give you a, uh, a reference here. Um, something that has been, I've been pondering, been going over it. It keeps coming up in my mind. I think I might have even shared this, I don't know, on Wednesday night. But it's Proverbs 31, it's verses 8 and 9, as it relates to this, this matter of injustice and how we're supposed to respond to it. Uh, Proverbs 31, verse 8. Open your mouth for the speechless. In the case of all who are appointed to die. So that's kind of dangerous, isn't it? I mean, they're been appointed to die. They're innocent. And you and I are called to open our mouth for them. To open our mouth. We're not supposed to stand by. We're to open our mouth 
and to speak. And then verse 9 says, open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. So we, as the people of God, when we see injustice, we're to call it out. We're to speak about it. We're to come and to help those people. We're to be a voice if they don't have a voice. So whatever sphere of influence you have, use it when you see people being mistreated. Any people being mistreated. Not just people that look like you or just not, you know, everybody but that group because they can come up with all the reasons why. No, any injustice at any time should be called out. And the Lord um, tells us to do this. And, you know, listen, in this lifetime, court may provide justice. In this lifetime, the government may stand up and, and correct her wrongs and, and provide justice, but she may not. But one day the Lord will make it all right, and he will settle all of those injustices in his courtroom in heaven. Well, in verses 4 through 10, uh, we see the, the introduction of the 10th plague and how the Lord is going to persuade uh, Pharaoh to let the children of Israel go. So in verses 4 through 10, it's the 10th plague or the death of the firstborn. <clears throat> then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of a female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn animals. I mean, it doesn't matter. If you're alive and you're firstborn, when this plague hits, death is going to come to you and to every single household. Verse 6, then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor like it again. And you may read, it's like, wow, that kind of seems like a little harsh, man. I mean... Everybody's going to die? Well, this is what the Bible says. You're going to reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. I mean, that's not, we may not like that. There may be some things, well, I don't know if I really like it. Well, I'm sorry, that's reality of Scripture. You're going to reap what you sow. If you sow to destruction, if you sow to the flesh, if you sow to sin, you're going to reap death from it. And so how you treat others is going to come back to you. And sometimes it will come back in the form of even judgment, as we previously talked about. So he's saying this is going to take place. Israel is called the firstborn of the Lord. His firstborn son. The nation of Israel is called his firstborn. What did Egypt do to Israel, the Lord's firstborn? Enslaved them, mistreated them, took their kids, threw them in the Nile. And the Lord's like, okay, this is the way you've done it. Now you're going to experience it. Now this is going to come upon you. And even as we'll read in the coming weeks, even at the Red Sea, even as they were drowning the children of Israel in the Nile, the Lord is going to allow the waters of the Red Sea to overcome the Egyptian army that's come back to enslave them and continue on that mistreatment. So verse 7, but... Against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue. So, I mean, the dog's not going to even bark. You know, people are going to be dying all throughout Egypt, but in the land of Goshen where the children of Israel are, dogs aren't going to even disrupt your sleep that night. Against man or beast that you may know that the Lord does not, that the Lord does, excuse me, that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. The Lord does make a difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. The Lord does make a difference between Lot and his family and the inhabitants of Sodom that were unrighteous. The Lord does make a difference 
In Thessalonians, we read that the church, God's people, are not appointed to wrath because Jesus took the wrath of our sin in his body. And so we're not going to have to endure this. I, it's one of the reasons why I hold to a pre-trib rapture is because during the great tribulation when God is judging this world, I believe that the church is going to be gone. And you may say, well, the Lord can preserve them. You know, those people, just like he did. The, the, the Israelites through these ten plagues. And you're absolutely right. He will preserve 144,000. 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel, no harm can come to them. But the rest of the saints are going to be brutalized and they're going to experience massive martyrdom during this time. And the enemy is going to prevail against them. And this is a time meant for the judgment of the Lord. So, you know, you can agree or disagree, but this is the principle, biblical principle that um, I look to. God distinguishes between the righteous and the unrighteous. You definitely want to be on the righteous side when the Lord comes and brings judgment. You want to be on the side of those that are in a right standing with God. And you can, you may, today you may feel like you're a million miles away from the Lord. Your thinking is all confused. You're here. A thousand things being talked about, about what is right and what you should think about God and how you should live your life and how you should feel about this thing or that thing. And it just feels like it, it is just swirling in your head. Or maybe you look at the way you're living and you're like, I'm living this way. I'm having some fun with it, but I know it's not right. I know that if I ever am held account for the way I've conducted myself, man, it's not going to be good. Well, listen, you can come, and you can be made righteous today. This is the beautiful thing of the, of the message of Christ, is that he takes your unrighteousness and my unrighteousness, and he died on the cross, he pays for that, and in exchange, he gives us his righteousness. And he makes, God makes a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous. And here's the beautiful thing. The righteousness we have in Christ Jesus is a righteousness of God, which is far better than any righteousness you or a thousand of yous could ever attain to. Because God is perfect. And so he takes our perfectly sinful lives and he dies for them on the cross. And we get his perfectly righteous life. And that is given to us. He makes a distinction. You want to be made righteous. No, you can't do it on your own. Uh, if you're in here today and you're not a believer, listen, there's not one of us in here that would say we did it on our own. We all would say, no, complete mess and failure. We came to Jesus Christ and we said, please forgive me. We don't feel like we're better than you. We just feel like we're... We've been, we've been rescued, and we're hoping that you'll be rescued today as well. So this is a principle that we find throughout Scripture. Verses 8 and 10, we move on. It says, and, there, and these, all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and all the people who follow you. After the tenth plague falls and firstborn are dead throughout the land of Egypt, people are going to be pleading with the Israelites to leave. Now, up until that point in time, he goes on to say, Pharaoh never wanted to, was unwilling to, but he's going to change his mind and you will leave the land. So the first nine plagues, the Lord never made that announcement. But the 10th plague, he says, this is it. You're going to be set free after they experience this judgment in their land. Chapter 12, in verses 1 through 11, <clears throat> the Lord begins to institute the details of what's going to happen on the night when this death plague passes at midnight throughout the land of Egypt. And he's going to distinguish between the righteous and the unrighteous. But he does call for the Israelites to do something. 
that they had not had to do in any of the other plagues. But in this one, he calls them to a certain action. And the action is they were going to have to take a lamb that was in his first year. They were going to have to sacrifice it. They would put the blood of that lamb on the doorpost and over the lintel of their homes. They would eat that meal together. They would have a lamb meal together with their families. And the next day they're going to depart. And so this is called the Passover feast. And you'll see why it's called Passover here as we move through this chapter. But um, this prefigures, and I want you just to get it in your mind now. I'm going to kind of give away the, you know, the climax of, of this whole story. I want you to see that Jesus is the Passover. He's the one. He's that lamb that's going to be slain. And it's his blood that's going to cover our sin and is going to allow the, the condemnation for the wages of sin is death. He's going to allow death to pass over us, and he's going to grant us eternal life. So all of these years before, the Lord is painting a picture. He's outlining it. So if you will, if you just imagine somebody painting, and they just have it all outlined. And it's in and of itself, it's a beautiful picture. But then just imagine the artist coming back and beginning to put color. Have you ever seen those artists that like, they'll like paint a painting upside down? Have you ever seen this? They'll paint this painting upside down, and then at the last moment, they'll do a few strokes, they'll turn it over, and this is this amazing scene. Or, yeah, just a, you know, amazing ways in which they do it. And it's kind of like this. We have this outline. We have this sketch of salvation that's real and then a historical moment for Israel, but it's much more beautiful than that. And so over the time, as the things go on, the, and then Christ comes and he dies as our Passover, man, now all of the color is put onto that sketch and it comes to life, and it's vibrant. So let's read this and read of this sketch of salvation. Verse 1, Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So, you know, we think of, you know, they had a religious calendar. They had a civil calendar. The religious calendar, it all started with their salvation. It all started with their exodus with being delivered from Egypt. And, that, and this should be the same for us. By the way, this Passover, this moment that we're reading right now, this corresponds with our Good Friday and our Easter Resurrection Sunday services. It's the same time of year. Okay? Um, it's just we know the fulfillment of it, and so we emphasize this piece of uh, his death, burial, and resurrection. Um, let's see. What else do I want to get here? Um, verses 3, let's move on. And speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, a little baby lamb, right? First year, according to the house of his father, a lamb for the household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So get the lamb and you shall take it according to your house. A lamb for your household. You're going to get this lamb, you're going to bring it in. This young male lamb, one year or younger, without any kind of defect in it. And it's going to come into your house. You're going to have it for four days. And after those four days, you're then going to take it and you're going to sacrifice it. 
Think about that for a moment. Now, some of you single guys are like, eh, what, what do you mean? Okay, a dad of two daughters. I can tell you without question that if I was to bring a little lamb into our house for four days, you see where I'm going with this? And then I say, all right, now the fourth day has come. It's now the 14th. We're going to take this lamb and we're going to sacrifice. I can hear the pleas already. Oh, daddy, do we have to? Can't we just get another one? We love this one. And you can just imagine the way kids would have been connecting with this. It's like, that's kind of like, why did they have to do that? There's a reason for that. There should be a connection. There should be this sense of injustice. This is not right. It's not fair that this lamb should have to die. This sweet, innocent lamb should have to die. And that's the way we should all feel about the lamb of God. We should all feel the Lord came and for 33 years he was in our midst and he walks, walked amongst us. And we saw his kindness and his generosity, his love, his compassion, his power, his wisdom, his insight. And you fall in love with Jesus. You fall in love with reading about him. Could you imagine if you were um, reading for the very first time the gospel message and you had no information about him at all? And you're reading through the gospel and you come to the place where they crucify him. Actually, Brother Nanda, um, he read the Bible for the very first time. And when he started reading about Jesus, he decided he wanted to meet Jesus. He's like, that's the kind of guy I need to meet. I need to talk to him about this. And so he, he began to learn some other languages, English and Hindi, so that he figured that G Jesus, he, he would speak one of those languages. And so he wanted to meet him. And then he got to the place where he, Jesus was crucified and just talks about how devastating it was when you read that. Because your heart gets knitted to this, this kind, generous God-man. And so there is that place of this innocent lamb that's going to be offered up. And um, is going to uh, be put to death. And you're going to partake of him. In the same way the Lord was innocent and he was put to death. And we partake of him. We eat of the bread that represents his body. We eat, we drink of that cup that represents his shed blood. So there's this, this beautiful picture. Again, you get the color beginning to come onto the scene as you, you put the, the life of Christ next to this Passover feast. And of course, the blood of the lamb is one thing. But as Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.19, he says, speaking of salvation, but we were, in verse 18, he says, we are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ as, of a, blam, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Think about Jesus as the lamb of God. Think about placing your hand on the lamb, Jesus, there in the temple and this is what they would do. They would bring their lambs in. They would place their hand on that temple, the transference of guilt, and then that lamb's throat would be slit. We all, in a sense, placed our hands on the head of the lamb of God. And the guilt was transferred to him. Families, we read, if they're too small, could join with other families. I think two things about this. Number one, who wants to have a party by themselves, right? I mean, nobody wants to have a party by themselves. And this is a party. So you want to come together and have a feast with other people. Join in the community. And the other thing is, if it's a real small family and they're poor and they had to sacrifice a whole lamb, this might be a financial burden on them. And so share the costs. 
So it was, in a, it was a community event that remembers um, in the years to come how the Lord delivered. Verse 7, And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. So in the land of Goshen where the Israelites were, they would sacrifice the animal. Um, they would place the blood on the doorpost and over the lintel, and they would share the meal together. And Jesus, again, is a picture of this Passover lamb. Verse 8, Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in the fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. What does that mean? Get your shoes and socks on. Have your car keys ready to go. All right? Don't go looking for your car keys. You need to be ready to go. And so come to the table and make sure you have everything you need to get up and walk out the door. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So... Um, a roasted lamb. They were, it was very specific instructions. I'm not going to be dogmatic about this, but what one author says about the Passover meal during the days of the Lord was they would take that lamb, and as they were going to get it, they would put two skewers through it. One would go, um, you know, kind of widthwise. One would go through lengthwise, creating the cross inside this lamb, and they would take this lamb and they would put it into an earthen oven to roast it in this way. And in the same way, Jesus dying on the cross and being put into a tomb. So I don't know if that's the reason why, but um, it was to be roasted in this way, but this is how. Um, I mean, I would rather eat it that way anyways. I think we all would agree. Yeah, I'd rather go barbecued lamb rather than boiled lamb. Sounds good. So maybe it's just like, you won't like it that way. Don't do it. But... Um, Unleavened bread, a big part of what's going on here, right? And, and the idea is there will be no yeast, a symbol of sin. Uh, unleavened being a symbol of being set apart. Um, unleavened symbolizing you got to get ready to go. Because leavened bread takes time, doesn't it? you got to let it have its impact and it has to rise. And he says, you're not going to have time. When, I mean, when this plague hits, you guys are going to be on roller skates. Man. You're going to have to fly out of Egypt. And so you're not going to be able to wait for your bread to rise. Deuteronomy 16.3 speaks of this point. It says, you shall not eat leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it. That is bre the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. So the leavened bread, a couple of things. You're coming out quickly. You couldn't let it rise. And we'll read in just a moment. Also, it speaks of the purity that we should have as we worship and follow the Lord. Um, they were to eat it with bitter herbs, reminding them of the bitter toil and burden that they had gone through and now were being redeemed from. And none was to be left over. Like the manna, don't hold it over. The Passover meal was to be special and holy. No to-go bags. All right, you're going to eat this. This is a special meal, and if you don't eat it all, it's all going to be burned up because it's on a specific night remembering the one night of deliverance. And you need to be ready to go. You know, this idea of having the belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, car keys in pocket kind of a thing, 
This is the way we're supposed to be waiting for the return of the Lord, isn't it? We're supposed to be ready to go when he comes. Hang on, Lord, not now. He's not going to hang on. But you get, you get the thought is like you could, in your life, are you living the way you're supposed to? Are you following Jesus? Are you ready to go with haste? Or you got a little bit of leaven in there? Do you have some things going on? It's like, yeah, don't come back this weekend. Don't come back tonight. Don't come back this year because this year has been a terrible year, Lord. Please wait till you get it right. No, get it right now. Before you walk out the door of this building, get it right with Jesus who loves you and died on the cross for your sins. You don't have to prolong it. If you prolong it, it's because you want your sin. It's because you don't want to forsake what you're engaged in. But you don't have to walk out of this door feeling shameful or feeling like things aren't right with the Lord or like, hang on, Jesus, please don't come back. Be ready to go at any moment. We should be looking up for our redemption draws near, right? We should be hastening, looking for the coming of the Lord. So in verses 12 through 13, you get a description of the death plague. He's going to pass through the land of Egypt. He's going to strike the firstborn. We already got this in the opening. Um, but that verse 13, wherever the blood is, that shall be a sign. And look at this, the middle of verse 13. And when I see the blood, I will what? Pass over. This is called the Passover feast. Death will not land on the home where the blood of the lamb is. If you're covered in the blood of the Lamb, if you come to Christ and you've received that sacrifice, you may die physically, but you will not die a second death. You will not end up in the lake of fire. You will not experience the eternal judgment of God in that state. You will be redeemed, and death will pass over you. And so this is a great salvation that we have in Christ. He did all of this for us. Nobody was twisting his arm. You know, sometimes people will be like, yeah, I don't know if the Bible's true. I'm like, do you, do you read it? I mean, have you read it? How, does somebody, how do slaves in Egypt write this story, and yet you have this beautiful fulfillment of Christ on the cross as the Lamb of God on Passover fulfilling all of this? That's not coincidence. That's not accident. And the Bible is full of this. Again, all of these sketches in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, all of the color is put onto it, fulfilling the pictures and the, and the sketches and the outlines of redemption. And we see it. And what is beautiful in every one of those paintings is it's Jesus. It's Jesus in every one of them. So we get this description. Um, Verse 14, we keep on moving. This deliverance we're going to see is, uh, and Mill was to stand as a perpetual reminder, right? So throughout their generations, they were to keep this as an everlasting ordinance. So they never, Israel was to never stop taking this. It was always to remind them of how they were delivered out from bondage. Verse 15 through 20, we move into another feast. So we've talked about Passover, which starts on the 14th. The Feast of Unleavened Bread starts on the 15th and runs for seven days. And some of the things that you read about in this feast in verses 15 through 20, um, no yeast, right? It's supposed to be seven days of unleavened bread. It ran for seven days. They were to remove all of the leaven out of their house. Mom loved this. I don't know if this is where the idea of spring cleaning came from. But they had to get all the leaven out. They, they would... They would wipe every wall, 
every countertop, the floor would be swept, they, they would get, you know, different, uh, they would clean and scour all of the, the bowls they used, or they would put some away, they would go through the cupboards, it all was going to be removed, all of the leaven was going to come out, because they needed to make sure there was no leaven. And even down to the little tradition, where the last thing they would do is they'd come around with a little feather and they'd try and find one little crumb and mom and dad would plant that little crumb around the house and the kids would come with the light and the feather and they aha, gotcha. And they would take it out. And there's that kind of sense of we got to pay attention to what's going on. So this was uh, besides being... Uh, connected with the haste with which they would go out and the unleavened bread. This was a great eight-day vacation. They were to do no work. They had a chance to rest. It was the beginning of their year and to get their minds focused on the fact that I'm saved. And this is what we're coming up with with the whole Easter celebration, isn't it? I'm saved. I've been redeemed. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 8. Therefore, purge out the old leaven. So this is now New Testament, and Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the leaven, unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I want you to see that in verse Seven, right in the middle, it says, since you are truly unleavened. It doesn't say, since you will be truly unleavened. It says what? You are. How are you unleavened? Because Christ, the Lamb, has shed his blood on you and has removed the sin. And because you are a righteous, set-apart person, keep on living like it. You're not trying to get to some place that you feel like you can never attain to. In Christ, you're there. So keep the kind of, if you will, the new shiny, you know, leather smell car, you know, smell in your car. Don't, don't bring the banana and leave it in the car. It's going to reek, you know. And in the same way, be careful how you live your life. Be careful what's going to spoil the righteousness in your life. If you get a new car, I can almost promise you, you're not parking in a tight spot between two cars that are beater cars. Am I right? Give it a year or two, then you will. But... Not the first couple of weeks. Absolutely. I'm parking in the back, away from it all. Because I've got this, this, you know, unleavened car. No marks, no scratches. But oh, the first scratch. First scratch is terrible, isn't it? Can you remember the first scratch on your car? I remember the first scratch on every car I've ever had. I remember. I remember somebody keyed my car. Just got paid. It was beautiful, 1978 Camaro, midnight blue. Awesome. Somebody keyed that thing. Um, I remember the truck, the black truck I have. I scratched it the first time. I was putting in a chop saw right on the car. Actually, that wasn't the first. My daughter ran into the mailbox while I was on vacation. <laughs> that was the first. I won't tell you which daughter, but her initials are M. W was, now it's MG, so you figured that out. But she was very apologetic. But, you, you know, when you have something that's clean and right and pure, you want to keep it that way. You are unleavened. You are, you are without sin. So live like it. Live in the purity of your calling. And don't allow that lust, those granules of lust and materialism 
Don't allow bitterness and resentment and pride and just living for the moment. Don't let those be the things that dominate your life. Paul says, you're a new lump. Maybe that's a great way to start referring to one another as new lumps. There's no leaven in it, right? But it's beautiful how he he nails it down. He says, for indeed Christ, our Passover. No question about it. The Bible is saying this Passover meal is fulfilled in Jesus. Well, as we come here and begin to try and wrap it up, we come to the lengthy section at the end, and I'm going to do a lot of summarizing I'm in these verses 21 through 51, where historically what we said, we just read was going to happen, it actually happened. So we we read what's going to take place, and then there's a little bit more that talks about it, and then it actually is fulfilled. So in this first uh, set of verses, in verses 21 through 23, I want you to look at verse 23 with me. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he passes... Or when he sees the blood on the lintel and the doorpost, the Lord will, again, pass over the door, not allow the destroyer to come into your house to strike you. I hope the blood of the lamb is on you so you don't have to deal with the destroyer. And then in verses 24 through 28, the Lord reminds them that this shall be a perpetual service. And that when the kids ask, why can't I have a donut? Oh, you can't have a donut because this is the week of unleavened bread. Well, what's unleavened bread and why do we do that? Okay, let's go back. Let me tell you what happened, you know, way back when. When our forefathers were enslaved in Egypt and then they can go and they can tell the story. And so they would pass this on uh, to their children. And we should be, yeah, taking advantage of this uh, coming uh, Passover season with Easter and the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord to talk. And so verses 29 through 36, at midnight, the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne throughout every place. You went to the dungeon, you went to the barn, you went to the, to the throne room or the, the, the palace. There's death everywhere. So verse 31, he calls them in the middle of the night. He doesn't even wake till daybreak. He says, get out of here. Leave, please. And then in verse 32, he says, and be gone, and oh, oh, by the way, can you bless me? It's interesting. It's like the, it, it, the guy doesn't really get it. Um, he is full of himself. Um, he knows he needs help, but he's not willing to change anything, is he? He's not really willing to fall down and, and, and just confess his sin um, as he ought to and to, I want to worship your God. Your God is awesome because your God just schooled all of our gods in these ten consecutive plagues this this the goddess of isis is being you know uh shown to be insufficient right now one who would protect children in the land of egypt but he doesn't do that he knows he needs help but he's unwilling to come to the one that can really help him and he just says, i just pray things will go well um verses 37 through 41 the children are going to leave egypt so we read they journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. Of course, you also have ladies, but these are 600,000 fighting men. So that's the age. You had children, you had women, you had older people, you had younger people. So you have a huge multitude that are leaving. And we read verse 38, a mixed multitude went up. So some Egyptians came out with them as well. They were impressed. And they do want to worship the Lord. 
And so again, we read about the unleavened cakes and so forth. But verse 40, we come to this point again. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of 430 years on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It takes us back to that Genesis 15 prophecy that your, children, your descendants will be in the land for 400 years. And so it is coming to pass, 400 being a round year. So the year, if you want to write it down, here in chapter 12 and verse 37 is 1446 B.C. Um, and we talked a lot about that date at the beginning, but that is the date according to the Bible. Now, we close there, verses 42 through 51. They're given more instruction about the Passover meal. Um, no foreigner was to eat the meal. No bones of the animal were to be broken. Think about that. No bones of this animal were to be broken. If it's all prefiguring Christ, how is that relevant? Because not a single bone of the Lord was broken. But the other two that were on either side of Jesus hanging on cross, their legs were broken. You would break the legs of somebody that was being crucified because they no longer had the ability to push up on that one nail or the ropes in some cases. But the nail that was driven through their feet to release the pressure that their rib cage was having on their lungs that didn't allow them to breathe. When you broke their lungs, they would die quickly because they would suffocate. But when they came to Jesus to break his legs... What had happened? He had already expired. He had already died. And so not one of his bones was broken. Again, you just see the detail with which the Lord fulfills this beautiful picture. And on verse 48, only the circumcised were to partake in the feast. So verse 51, it came to pass on the very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. Deliverance deliverance and you know one day we all are going to be we're all going to leave this place but we need to make certain we're ready to go and the only way you can be ready to go is to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ he alone is savior there's nobody else yeah but what about all these other no all those other things are distractions from the truth there's an enemy and there's a liar there's somebody that's doing spin we're very familiar with that term, right? It's spin. I don't know if any of you have tried to, you know, I don't know why I find it interesting, but I, I find it. How many, how many soldiers, have, Russian soldiers have died? How many tanks have been destroyed? And you go and do that. And the numbers, it's like, well, if you read the Ukrainian view, they've got one large number. If you read the Russian view, they got another large number. Because everybody's trying to, to control the narrative and, and give a certain kind of a view. Listen, there's only, there, there is truth. We just don't know what it is as it relates to the army. But there is a truth as it relates to salvation. And Satan has all kinds of spins out there. All kinds of religions to distract you from the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through him. And I know some of you are thinking, yeah, but that just seems so narrow. And I would say, that's truth for you. Truth is narrow. If it's true, then you want to know it. And you want to know the narrowness of it. And you just sticking your head in the ground and pretending like that's not true doesn't make it false. It just means you're not going to walk in it. And I pray you will walk in the truth of the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this picture that you've painted that is so beautiful. Providing real salvation in that day and hour, 1446 B.C., for the children of Israel that has suffered so much 
mistreatment and death and heartbreak. You provided salvation for them and death passed over, prefiguring for us the way in which you would send your lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that we might be covered by his blood, that we might be able to have the hope of eternal life because death has passed over us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this salvation.